On the 8th of June 2022, Ramon Oloruwa Abbas, aka Hush Puppy, was arrested in Dubai on multiple charges of obtaining money through fraudulent means. It happened at his penthouse in the early hours of the morning. Hush Puppy's estate was raided by the Dubai SWAT team in what was called Operation Fox Hunt 2. When the news of his arrest broke across the world, it confirmed a narrative about Nigerians and scams that has been mainstreamed since the early 2000s. Hush Puppy was responsible for the misappropriation of over $30 million, money he had diverted from businesses by hacking their emails. As he seemingly got richer, his lifestyle got more lavish. His Instagram account, where he had 2.8 million followers, was filled with fancy cars and designer clothes. And his captions encouraged his followers to work harder so they could become more successful like him. Before his account was shut down by Instagram in 2022, the lifestyle he flaunted made him the most visible example of internet scammers in Nigeria called Yahoo Boys. Today, Nigeria's international reputation as the face of cyber fraud has resulted in everything, from travel bans to restrictions on international transactions. But at the same time, Yahoo Boys and the culture that they've created are celebrated. Olumentain released Yahoo Zay in 2007, and just like that, a song about internet scamming became one of the biggest records in the country. Olumentain even ended up performing Yahoo on stage in London with former US Secretary of State Colin Powell. Today, internet fraud is a part of the larger world of cybercrime that is now bigger than any one country. Cybercrime is global, transnational, and responsible for the loss of up to 600 billion US dollars every year. It is described as any computer-related offense, and countries like China, Russia, Brazil, and India report the highest rates of cybercrime. And while Nigeria does record high rates of cybercrime too, it has the added reputation of being the fraud capital of the world. The Nigerian prince has evolved from a character in the classic 419 scam to a pop culture phenomenon that has taken on a life of its own. I'm trusting to a fault, and even I know the screams Nigerian scam. Yeah, have you ever FaceTimed Kirsten? No. As rates of cybercrime across the world continue to grow year after year, fixing the problem means the story of cybercrime might need to change. And in this new story, Nigeria might not be that important. You're listening to Uncultured, where we give you short answers to culture's biggest questions so you don't have to worry about looking uncultured. I'm your host, Tamar Ai here, and this is How to Become a Yahoo Boy. Every good scam starts with a good story. And the story of Nigeria's Yahoo Boys starts here, in a cyber cafe. In the early 1990s, the internet came to Nigeria. The NCC, or Nigerian Communications Commission, gave licenses to 38 internet service providers. And soon, people all over the country were introduced to the dial-up internet of the early 90s. Small businesses in urban areas started offering internet services, like accessing emails. If you wanted to become a Yahoo Boy in the 90s, this was how you started. All you needed was access to a cyber cafe, a free Yahoo email address, and a really, really good story. Compliments of the day. I am John, the son of a deposed Nigerian king. He was brutally murdered in a coup by the government, and now they want to seize all my father's oil and gas assets, including an account in the US that contained the sum of 8 million US dollars. I am writing to you as a last resort. 
I need a trusted beneficiary to receive these funds on my behalf until I can come to the U.S. and collect them myself. So John would send that email out to as many foreign email addresses as he could find. And these email addresses were usually gotten through things like big websites posing as credible websites where people would leave their info. So when John was done sending out his email, he would wait for a response. Once he found someone who bought the story, the real world would then start. Thank you for responding. My intuition told me you were a person to be trusted. The funds are being held in a Wells Fargo bank account that is about to be closed for being dormant unless an activation fee is deposited to prove it is still active. Once the money is received, you can start the process of initiating the transfer to yourself. My banker will give you a letter that says the beneficiary is entitled to 25% of the money as a processing fee. Please let me know as soon as you can send the money. Thank you. This is the scam we've come to know as 419 a shorthand for Section 419 of the Nigerian Criminal Code, which defines this as Advanced Fee Fraud. If the respondent to John's email went ahead and paid the activation fee, he would eventually realize that more and more activation fees would pop out of nowhere and that the $8 million would never materialize. So the basic idea of 419 is simple. You make someone an offer that feels too good to be true, and if that person is naive enough to believe it is true, you milk that naivety until they eventually realize that your offer does not, in fact, exist. Another version of this scam is the romance con. Young men like John would strike up relationships with foreign women on the internet. They would go after women who were older and unattached because they were considered more likely to be lonely and desperate. John would promise everything from love to marriage to unlimited sex. Let me complete my promises, alright? And I'm doing only most of all that I'm going to do to you, baby, for you to know that I'm loyal. I'm going to leak your yarn. All in exchange for wire transfers of cash from these women. Now, scams like this didn't start with the internet, and they didn't start with Nigerians either. The 419 scam has roots in a con that started in Spain as far back as the 19th century. It was called the Spanish Prisoner Swindle, or the Spanish Prisoner Scam, and it took off with the rise of the postal system. So Spanish criminals would find the addresses of people across Britain and America with the help of trade directories, and then they would mail letters to these addresses. These letters would claim that they were English soldiers captured and dying in Spanish prisons with untouched fortunes in England that needed to be recovered, and also a daughter who needed a guardian. They would ask for money to cover the daughter's travel expenses and other costs, and if the receiver of the letter was naive enough to send the money, they would never actually get to see the promised fortunes. There are even records of a similar scam that dates back to 18th century France where letters like this were called Letters of Jerusalem. In Nigeria's case, no one knows when the first 419 letter was sent, but the earliest record of this type of letter in West Africa can be traced back to the 1920s and a Ghanaian man named P. Kredsel, aka Professor of Wonders. He claimed to have magical powers that could change your life, for a small fee of course. He was eventually arrested, but none of the charges stuck, and since then, Scams coming out of Ghana and Nigeria have only continued to grow. When Nigeria experienced an oil boom in the 70s, the rates of 419 peaked thanks to the postal system. Letters allowed scammers to promise foreigners cuts of embezzled oil fortunes from corrupt Nigerian government. With the rise of the internet, letters became emails, and those emails have now defined Nigeria as the fraud hub of the world. But for as long as people have been able to send letters pretending to be other people, these types of scams have existed. It's also not something that has ever been unique to Nigeria. It happens all over the world. But today, the country's reputation as the birthplace of advanced fee fraud is bigger than the scams and the scammers that came before it. Why? 
Well, it could all go back to one man who sold an imaginary airport to a Brazilian bank for over $240 million. We're getting into this story after the break, so stick around. So Imanawude is uh, is a guy <laughs> uh, <as> a <laughs> um, who was who basically stole two hundred forty two million dollars from Banco Noriete. I mean, it wasn't just him, um, but then the scam was they were selling the airports. It was Abuja Airports. It was in the late nineties, and the bank was supposed to come in to fund the airports, or or, or so they said. Um, so that was the. <laughs> That was the that was the story. I'm Chamal Nguyen, a producer of Two Three Four One Nine Podcast and founder of Raconteur Productions. What inspired the making of Two Three Four One Nine, your dramatized podcast of one of the biggest four one nine scams in Nigeria's history? I think I'd always wanted to tell that story. It was always like fascinating to me that we had like you know we had like the biggest scams you know like the third biggest scam the story itself I'd say is the inspiration it's just a wild story and I had never seen it told in a form that was a story you know like there's catch me if you can it's dramatized it's told like uh, it's larger than life you know you you even kind of you empathize with the criminal you know like so there's so many ways like stories are told globally so I felt like this was this was the story, you know, to, to tell. In 1995, Nelson Sakaguchi, director of Banco Noreste in Brazil, got an email from Paul Ogumam, the governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria at the time. The email promised Mr. Sakaguchi a $10 million commission if the bank invested $242 million into the construction of a new airport in Abuja. The only catch was that the governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria did not send that email. A man named Emmanuel Nwude did. So you interviewed Emmanuel Nwede himself for the podcast. Oh, wow, I love him. <laughs> I can't lie. Um, he was, he's so charismatic. You know, Emmanuel Nwede. I mean, you have to be to have, to have that. But even beyond that, you know, because he didn't. So I guess like that's where the OGs differ from now. Now it's a lot of flossing. You know, it's like buy a car, buy something. You know, there's something, go to club, pop bottles and things like that. He owned Union Bank. He was the direct, he was the largest shareholder of Union Bank. So he was, he was a businessman. He was an entrepreneur. He was the, <laughs> oh, he is, you know, this, you know, and he's very, I mean, we had dinner um, um, and yeah, and he just told the side of the story because for him, he hadn't, he hadn't been asked. And that was the interesting part. It's like nobody had, you know, all of this time, he, all of this time, he has never like said his side. Rude wasn't an average scammer. Using the access that his status in the banking industry gave him, he was able to access classified documents and information that made his impersonation of Paul Oguma even more believable. Over the course of two years, Mr. Sakaguchi had illegally sent up to $191 million to Emmanuel Rude. So what surprised or stood out to you when you were researching this story? So I researched this uh, for two years. Um, first of all, I was trying to go through the courts to find like the court file. Then I got some locks, so I ran into his lawyer, and then I was able to get like case files from Switzerland, from the U.S., you know, from everything. And it was just, I guess, the core of it is, I guess, greed. If somebody comes to me with an offer of ten million 
dollars, you know, like, I guess the first question should be, why me? There was also theft on the other end, you know, with Sakaguchi. I guess that's the, the more revealing thing to me was because he spent millions of dollars as well that were not accounted for. I mean, he spent $20 million to a, uh, a shaman, a Brazilian priest, to secure the deal. So, <laughs> so it's wild. Like, it's honestly, you know, for jazz. $20 million for jazz. <laughs> Like, you know, and that's from Brazil to Japan. So literally, like, we're globally united by fraud. <laughs> in 1997, an audit on Banco Noreste led to an investigation that eventually revealed the scam to the board of directors. Mr. Sakaguchi was quickly arrested and detained in Switzerland. Mude would enjoy his profits for a couple years, but in 2003, he was arrested in his Ikui home and his fleet of expensive cars were confiscated. Nude can now be found trying to recover some of his assets that he claims the EFCC allegedly sold. This airport scam became the third largest parking scam in history, and it cemented Nigeria's reputation as the hub of internet fraud. It's also the reason why the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission, aka EFCC, was established in 2003 as a response to the international fallout of Nude's crime. It spanned from 97 to 2001, and it was the biggest case, it was the first case out of uh, EFCC. So Novo Ribadu, straight out of bats, um, this, this was the case that made Novo Ribadu and, and, and launched the EFCC. Um, so yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's very interesting. So why was it important for you to retell this story? So I guess for me, like, characters are neither good or bad, they just are. Um, so it was about telling the story of each person. It was important that we told it first. I guess that's the main thing, because in more recent times, or at the time I, I made the podcast, there was the Hush Puppy, um, there was Invictus, they were like, they were, and, and it felt like they were this like Hollywood companies, they were like licensing the story. Snatching them up. They were already coming from outside, like trying to tell us like the story. And, and you know how it would go, like there would be like this white savior FBI guy who came to like, <laughs> who came to kind of arrest this Nigerian guy. So I think it was important to put a story out there that came from us first not objectively good or bad or whatever it's just like we're telling it so we're able to tell the story of everybody yeah the story of even the victims the story of the of of how we were also able to to prosecute the case you know like and, and to take the story from beginning to end so there's no like outside savior i think that was like the urgency for me more recently yahoo boys have become an excuse for the nigerian police to stop search and detain young nigerians who they suspect of fraud these shakedowns are so rampant and violent that they triggered the most significant protests in Nigeria's recent history, the NSARS protests of 2020. So what are your thoughts on Nigeria's international reputation as a fraud hub? Oh, so yeah, I guess we have a bad rap, but it's also PR, you know, um, and that's why we need to start, we need to get in front of telling our stories. Nigerians participate in fraud, but we're not top 10, you know, um, and even when the fraud is 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 um, the fraud is instigated from somewhere else. They use Nigerian names. Mm -hmm. North Korea, for instance, is a state-sanctioned activity. Is internet fraud? Like this is how the com the country generates revenue. So they so for them, like from there's a department on fraud. So mm. so they so <laughs> it's true, and it's like you know it's it's, it's state-sanctioned. So there's there there's so many other um, even the Nigerian princes you know that they use. 
it's not necessarily Nigeria. I'm not saying we don't do it because we do. Yeah. Um, but we also need to like control our PR, I guess. And that's what like, America does really well. You know, you don't know that there are thousands of homeless people. You just think like it's uh, like so. <laughs> so yeah, it doesn't mean that there are no homeless people. Just not talking about it as much. So yeah. So my final question for you. Are you still going to make 234 one night <laughs> into a TV show? Yeah, but all the conditions that have to be right, man. It's going to be it's gonna be really expensive. But yes, I definitely do. Like, uh, I was, my American Crime Story, mm-hmm. uh, the anthology mm-hmm. was my, my initial inspiration. So, so exactly. So I do want to make it to a TV show. And even beyond that, like, I'm, I, I know I still have to do, like, further seasons. <laughs> of the podcast uh, but it's just like it's finding the stories that I can tell well mm. you know mm. I guess it's, it's 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 the main challenge but thank you Joma for coming today and speaking to us thank you for having me yes it was a good time and I learned quite a lot Before we left, we were breaking down how to become a Yahoo boy. So far, we know that in the 90s, all you needed was a cyber cafe, a Yahoo email address, and a good story. These days, the traditional 419 scam of the 90s still exists, but not as much. There's a new, more lucrative scam that has allowed people like Hush Puppy to go from the streets of Lagos to a million-dollar mansion in Dubai. The BEC scam that Hush Puppy was known for is an abbreviation for Business Email Compromise, and it's been gaining traction since 2013. A BEC scam typically involves hacking into the email of a business or corporation. Hackers get in by using phishing emails or by just monitoring the activities of the business. When the hackers get into the email, they don't do anything immediately. They just monitor the business's activities, mostly the payments coming in and out, until they get a sense of how to impersonate the business. So, if John from the Cyber Cafe wanted to upscale and start running BEC scams, it would look something like this. He would have to hack his way into the emails of someone who worked high up in a bank, for example. Once he was there, he would wait and monitor their invoices and requests for payments being sent out through the email address. When he was finally ready to do something, he would either forge an invoice for a client where he would insert his own bank account details instead of the businesses. Or he would follow up on an invoice that had already been sent out and send a message of his own claiming the account details provided were incorrect. He would then send the correct details, aka his own details. So either way, clients of the business would end up paying money into John's account and the business's profits would be diverted. That's the basic gist. Now, when you operate this kind of scam on a level where clients pay millions of dollars, it goes from being a simple BEC scam to a loose international criminal enterprise. When the details of Hush Puppy's case came to light, It didn't take long to see that it was a small part of a much bigger criminal organization that connects hackers in North Korea to money launderers in Canada. In the months that led up to Hush Puppy's arrest, a man named Galeb Alumari had been arrested by the FBI in September of 2021. As the FBI would use information from Alumari to put the pieces together, they would discover an entire international network of cyber criminals. It starts with state-sponsored hackers from North Korea who had been committing cyber crimes for over a decade. These hackers would get access to business accounts and they would either forge invoices or swap out account numbers. Hush Puppy's job was to provide the accounts that would be used to collect the huge sums of money that the hackers were diverting from the businesses. And Alomari's job was to clean this money so it could be used without being traced back to them. 
Some of their victims include a bank in Malta and an American law firm. And they even tried to run a BC scam on a Premier League team. That was unsuccessful. The money that they stole was being circulated all over the world through hackers and money launderers covering their tracks. It was an international operation and bigger than any one country or territory. But when the news broke, the spotlight was on Hush Puppy because again, he's Nigerian and it confirmed the mainstream narrative. But also because Hush Puppy kind of wanted it that way. He loved flaunting his lifestyle. A 2020 Rolls-Royce Cullinan, a Ferrari 458 Italia, a Bentley Bentayga. These were a few of the cars on his Instagram. Posh Poppy was not your typical Yahoo boy. He was an influencer. He partied with the rich and famous and he constantly flooded our Instagram feeds with inspirational quotes attached to photos of pure luxury. Like most Nigerians, he grew up poor. He was the son of a taxi driver and a bread seller who spent the earlier part of his life in Oranshoki, a suburb just after you get off the third mainland bridge in Lagos. In 2014, he moved to Malaysia, and by 2017, he had grown an Instagram following, moved to Dubai, and started a friendship with a man named Momfa, another popular influencer. For people like Hush Puppy and Emmanuel Nude, showing off their wealth was as important as making it. It didn't really matter that it made them easier to catch. For them, it was a gamble that was worth it. And to understand people like Hush Puppy and the many other Yahoo boys like him willing to risk everything for some fame and recognition, you have to understand Nigeria's economic and political history. When Nigeria experienced an oil boom in the 70s, the money that was pouring into the country was quickly embezzled by government officials. By the 80s, the price of oil started to fall, and the Nigerian economy that was dependent on the revenue from oil exports fell with it. By 1986, Ibrahim Babagida, who was president at the time, implemented Structural Adjustment Policies, or SAPs, across Nigeria. SAPs are loans with strict terms offered jointly by international development banks and organizations. The money from the loans came with a set of fiscal policies that had debatable impacts on Nigeria's economy. One of the ways it was supposed to improve the economy was by limiting government spending. And one of the ways that the government spent less money was by investing less and less in social infrastructure. So subsidies on essential commodities like food and petrol were removed. And what happened as a result was that the government was spending less and the standard of living started to decline and fast. This was the reality of Nigeria in the late 80s and 90s, and honestly, things haven't gotten that much better today. It didn't take long for people to start losing faith in the government and start looking for other ways of getting rich and escaping poverty. And 419 presented an opportunity to not just get rich quick, but an opportunity to survive in a country where options were limited. We gave Nigerians in poverty the opportunity to not only transcend that poverty, but also an opportunity to live and act as opulently as the politicians who are still living well, despite the population's standard of living getting worse year on year. Presently, Nigerians still have a uh, complicated and interesting relationship with 419. It's a relationship where we all agree that being profiled for the crimes of a French community isn't fair, but we also love songs and movies that directly celebrate this culture. In 2004, Nkemo starred in the Nollywood film Masters, where he played a 419 scammer who swindled foreign businessmen for all their money. The soundtrack to the movie would include a song, performed by Wu himself, that captured the story of 419 in a catchy two-minute record. 419 is justice. You are the loser. I am the winner. 
I go chop your dollar joined songs like Kelly Handsome's 2008 hit single, Magadum P, which told a story of scammers who scored big and never got caught. And more recently, we've fallen in love with songs like Cash Up by Bella Murder and of course, Naira Mali's infamous song, Amai Yahoo Boy. 419 scams may have started off as an international crime that connected scammers in Nigeria to victims in the West. But now, the cyber fraud of the early 90s has come home and become as much of a local pain as it is an international problem. Yahoo has become a catch-all for the many scams and swindles that make Nigerians themselves the primary victims. People have lost life savings, businesses, and even their lives to the activities of scammers determined to live large on others' dime. These recent local dynamics challenge the notion of 419 as a victimless crime on distant Westerners. But in popular culture, there's still a counter-narrative of 419 as international reparations. Stupid Westerner. It's pay about time. Mm. Slave trade. Nigeria was a British colony from the late 1800s to 1960, when British slavery was abolished in 1834 by the Slavery Abolition Act. It was British slave owners who got reparations that totaled 20 million pounds at the time, and an estimate of 300 billion pounds today, according to the Guardian. The enslaved people in the Caribbean and the African countries that would go on to be colonized would never receive any reparations of their own. When people talk about payback, this is the part of the history that they're pointing to. A history of racism that shows up in everything. In the early 2000s, there was a site called 419eaters.com. It was a scam baiting website. Scam baiting is a type of internet vigilantism that started happening as 419 scams were growing. It was a group of people, mostly from the US, who are reverse scamming by deliberately wasting scammers' time. Part of doing this was asking scammers to send photos to prove they were legit. So, if John's email from earlier was seen by a scam beta, they would get a response asking for a picture of them holding a banana, for example. And John would probably send it. But what John would later realize was how bizarre some of these photo requests were. He could be asked to pose wearing a bra, for example, or to pose with cucumbers in his mouth, or slapping another man with a fish. John's photo would become a meme and something used for laughs all over the forum before it later made its way onto sites like Reddit. On these forums, users would use racist stereotypes to talk about hunting down scammers and would often dehumanize them. Even when we look at the way scammers from Nigeria are represented in the media, at the same time, countries like the US and China where most cybercrimes originate don't carry the same stigma. It gets to be a cybercrime problem, not a Chinese problem or an American problem. Sites like 419eater.com and also the media's representation of Nigeria show a clearer picture of the power dynamics between scammers from the global south in general and their victims in the global north. It's not as black or white as it's often portrayed. Today, Hush Puppy faces up to 11 years in federal prison. His story and his arrest helped to expose the true scale of BEC scam. Yahoo boys are a small fish in the big, big pond of cyber crime. And maybe they stop being the center of the story, we can actually have a world with less scams. To God be the glory. <laughs> I've been your host, Tamara, and if you like the show, please make sure to check out the next episode. Our producers for this episode have been Adora Odua and Maiwa Udo. Original script was written by Adora Odua. Sound design was done by Adora Odua with additional design by Daniel Olaolua. A special thank you to our guest Chioma Onyemwe. And Uncultured is produced by Culture Custodian. 
Make sure to listen to our other episodes, leave us a comment and subscribe to never miss an episode. Follow us on social media at Culture Custodian everywhere. Bye.